I've got because I've seen so much of you. I've got a list of things I want to go. I want. I've got routes that I want to go down so that this isn't an identical podcast to what you've already done. Because, well, yeah, you're very, you're very, very captivating, and I know that if you hadn't gone to jail for as long as you had, you would have you'd have performed miracles on the outside world because of your frequency that you work on. And thank you. Yeah. I see something when I, when I saw the panorama documentary, all the podcasts that you've been on, when I saw you in banged up, I thought, fucking hell, this geezer has got something different about him. And I didn't know your story. So let's just, let's kick this off it's now. We, we, we got Kevin Lane in the house. Thank you very much, Liam. Thanks for coming pleasure on. Pleasure being here. He's got a good hat and shape, and he's muscly as fuck. And he's handsome. <laughs> handsome. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, lots I want to delve into for uh, for lots of reasons. First and foremost, I'm a fan, uh, and this is we're on the same team today because you've probably lost your faith in a lot of fucking people because you've been fitted up, and now you're fighting back. So we get your book in there first of all because this is. Uh, well, it's an enthralling read for starters, and it's completely unbelievable. I haven't read it all because I wanted to stop where I was so that when you hit me with it, in the way that you hit me with it, it's going to feel fresh to me. Banged up. That was my first encounter with Kev Lane. Great character on there. Channel 4 must have thought, lovely jubbly. What a <laughs> character we've got on here. This, this will blow up now. So what was that experience like going back into jail, but knowing you didn't actually have to be there? Well, I knew I was going home, Liam. That's the difference, isn't it? Like when I was serving my sentence, I was fighting in the belly of the beast to get out. It was a very deep hole. And it was quite, it was, like I said, I knew I was going home. I didn't know if I was ever going home. I had natural life given to me. They said, you are going to remain in prison indefinitely in 2010. And that's like completely offending behaviour courses. So it wasn't given the natural life, but as such, you are never going to be released. They had that in writing from the Home Office. That, that's very daunting when you're in prison. And he's got... My, John Scott was my trainer, boxing trainer. He said, keep throwing them punches and eventually one will land. I thought, well, I don't want to throw 100 punches and miss. He said, he used to say, work off 100 punches and you'll get the big knockout eventually. So every time I sent a letter, I thought, well, that's another punch, that's another punch, I might get one reply. So I worked off of it. So when I went into Banged Up, everything was shut up, everybody went home, and the team was up there, the production team was up there. And I was staying up there, and the Tim Whitwell, the producer, says, Kevin, uh, yeah, you're welcome to come out of us tonight, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. Uh, he said, where are you staying? I said, I'll stay in there, back in the nick. He says, you're not staying in there. I said, well, it won't matter, I'll be drunk. I said, I'm only sleeping in a bed that I've slept in for 20 years. I said, it makes no difference to me. He's going, you ain't staying in there. I said, it don't make no difference. It's one night. So I didn't mind going back in there. Um, I enjoyed it. In there, I banged myself up. Going up, lock the door. You've got some of the cons again. I ain't been out all day. Or what's happened to the regime? We meant to have this, we meant to have that. I said, you lot, you've done a bit of bird. Stop fucking moaning. Get on with it. It's bird, isn't it? You're doing time. So for me, it was... 12 and a half days, 10 days, and then they did the pilot before that. It's a shit and a shave, isn't it, really? Um, I'll tell you what, first of all, going back in there, it was very, very, very close to being in prison in terms of you couldn't have got it more real apart from there was a lot of activity in a very small period of time. If that was in a normal prison, you wouldn't have seen the bell going off. You wouldn't have seen people running around doing so much. 
every day like that. I mean, if you threaten to screw, the bell's gone, you're, you're in the block. Mm. Uh, Mufti are there or you're dragged off, aren't you? Not hard, that's never happened to me, but with some of the things some of the lads were doing in there, they'd have been gone. That was difficult for me going in there because I wasn't used to seeing a lot of the things that was uh, how they were behaving and getting away with it. Like I say, the bell will be gone or you'll be gone over lunchtime or you get stabbed or you get weighed in severely. And there's a scene in my cell where they come in to have a go at Marcus Lufus. That never would have happened in, in any prison I was in. The rules are established as soon as you get into that prison. People know who you are. They know the way you operate. Um, for people to come into my cell like that, they'd have had to be calling it right on there and then mm. because not only that, the boundaries are set. It wouldn't have happened. End of. Them lads might turn and say it would have happened. No, but it wouldn't have happened because I'd have come into that prison known there'd been people that had known me and if they didn't know me anyway, you come into my cell, you're going straight back out of it. End of. What are you coming into my cell for? Firm-handed. Let's just get it on. Uh, and that's my response. So those was very difficult for me. But I think in terms of what the lads achieved, the public, shock and awe. That's what the public needed, shock and awe. So there's a lot of difficult situations in there for all of us, I must say. But um, I thoroughly enjoyed it, I must say. I was going to say, on the whole, you enjoyed doing it. You're glad you did it. I really enjoyed it. There was a scene where you cheek something. If anyone doesn't know what cheeking is in jail, it means you smuggle something in up your ass, and obviously yeah. you've got to pull it out and you had shit all over your hands. Yeah. And you was banged up with that MP, weren't you? Johnny Mercer. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>, good crack <laughs> in. <laughs> Fucking hell. I mean, that was, for Channel 4, that, that was genius to, to pair you two up. So was that, was that staged? Or no, did... no, I plugged it up my ass, put it in the safe. Straight up. Because you've got a passage, didn't you? You've got your, you got your anus in your anal when it goes past the anal into the rectum and so on, and it goes into a void, doesn't it? So if you've got a bleeding cigar tube, I'm not going to say like that, but if you've got a cigar tube like that, I cut it down. So I thought, oh, I don't want to be pushing that on my backside. I've only, you know, so I, I cut it down. And it's the largest thing that's been up my ass, to be honest with you. And what was it? It was a cigar tube with... Tobacco and such in there. Contraband, you smell. Contraband, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and nobody knew I had it in there, even on the pilot. I, I The pilot, I took, uh, you know, the nasal thing, uh, what they called? Uh, Vicks. Vicks, I took that in there, right? So when Johnny Mercer's, he's looking at me, he's going, this is strange, what is it? I said, that's the menthol. You can t you can see it's menthol on the, on the cigarette. And he's, he's looked at it and he said, can I have another one? <laughs> Afterwards, and was getting drunk and he said of course we get another bottle and the production team came down about half past 12 they said Kevin we're stopping filming now you've got to go to bed <laughs> we was getting on it you know it was strong my hooch I was going to say I've heard you talk about uh, your prison made hooch from when you was behind the door <laughs> properly that may well be on the shelves in liquor stores and supermarkets one day I wouldn't be surprised if a production company gets hold of your story, approaches you to make a film, and then you have a product line. And because I've seen you mention the hooch so many times, I'm just going to predict that now. So we can we can play this short in 10 years when everyone's drinking Kev Lane's hooch. Well, we've got um, Marcus Lufus, Sid Howard, actually, uh, but finally got the Lennox brothers who've written the film. The film is now with New Amsterdam, which is a production company, uh, very big. Um, they've had the script now unfinished. It, the script from the film's been written two or three, it's been through the, the mill three times now, and it's now on the final edit. 
And New Amsterdam said, no, we want it now. So they've taken it as it is, and they've had it now a month, I suppose. So there is going to be a film made on your story. I've read it. It's really good. They've taken it from the book, The Lennox Brothers. They work with people like Beyonce. They do music videos and that, the script writing. Kelly Marcel is uh, friends of them. Uh, they're all linked with Tom Hardy and all that, so they're right close. Um, it's been written, and we're waiting to see now. After that, it's going to go to, if they don't take it, which... You know, they've asked for it. They've been chasing it. So, yeah, we're on there. And the ooch, it will become a brand. Look at the third question, what I've got written down. Fitting up and fighting back. Tom Hardy would play Kev Lane. <laughs> so, How fucking mad's that? Kelly, Tom Hardy would play a great Kev Lane. He would be. He's, we've got Bronson in my film, don't forget. So Tom Hardy's played Bronson and they were going to play Bronson in the film. So they, they originally, they had a few people penciled in to play me. Um, I'm not at liberty to discuss it live at the moment, but they're A-list actors. Well, I think your story requires A-listers. Yeah. It's I, no joke. Well, Ken Dodd's dead now, so we can't have him no more. Fuck. Fucking gutted. <laughs> 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 but I do think so, and the, the story's... My, my case is pretty well known now, and there's a lot of films out there. There's a lot of people's cases that will make good films, but... My book's been really well received. It's an excellent read. People just don't stop saying it. You have to go on what people's reviews are. So I know, I always knew it made a good film. And I think if it gets onto the onto the big screen, it'd be shock and awe. Yeah, I would 100% say so. I've knocked back a script once. I said, no, I'm not interested in that. Too much embellishment. In the name of the father, got nine Oscars, I think, didn't it? Or something like the nine BAFTAs. And that was a, a, a true life film, as we all know. I want mine to be true life. No embellishment. To stick to the fact. You can have a few things in there to do with artificial intelligence where copper turning into pigs. That's in my film. So there's a scene where they, they evolve into pigs and they evolve back into coppers as they're destroying evidence. It's a good, good little clip. I can't let too much about that, but there's stuff like that. So, yeah. And full respect for you having that, that line of truth. I mean, if you've been fighting lies for 20-plus years, the last thing you want is your film to come out and that be a lie. If there's one lie in there, the rest could be lies. Exactly. Uh, mm. And, I've, you know, I've had to say, no, it has to be right. Even down to how you may have written something, I wouldn't say it like that. But they told me, look, that's what's going to happen, Kevin, and then you're going to come back and we're going to change this little bit. So it's a bit of meat on the bone stuff, but the script's excellent, the boys are excellent, and I'm really looking forward to... Will they give you a part in the film? It's been broached. Um... I turned down the film a little while ago. Someone said I need to get to just do a few bit of acting things for the camera and that. But I might do it. I might not. I'd rather have someone play me. I could, have, I could see you acting. Just myself, Liam. You know, mm. I just go in there and be myself, and then if people like it, under pressure, under scrutiny, that you you don't you don't fold, which I'm sure is the same for an actor. Camera lights, action. You're on the spot. Perform. I just think you just look like somebody that could could do that because you're comfy in these situations. Well, the unit I was in had 84 cameras in it. It was the most observed building in Europe when I went into the special secure unit in Whitemore. And you get used to cameras around you, so that probably helps. I've done motivational speaking before in the over the years, so in sales, and I take to it. I quite like it. Let's just quickly take it back and then go through a little bit. I want to just touch base on, because you used to... Uh pull off Norman Wisdom, didn't you, when you was a kid? And Norman Wisdom was my nan's favourite, so when I look at Norman Wisdom, I get a real fuzzy feeling, and my nan met 
Norman Wisdom on a cruise. So we we had a picture of Norman Wisdom up in my nan's house. It was great, Mr. Grimsdale. Yeah, yeah, loved him. And then Frank Spencer. Frank Spencer. Oh, Betty, I used to do all that. I used to have a little ventriloquist doll, mm. and used to do acts. I used to like performing for my mum and her friends and that. And uh, I've always been sort of a happy kid. Um, and they was great films to watch as kids, weren't they? Oh, don't make them like that no more. They don't. No, I used no. to love all them things. Mm. When you had a bit, of, so you see, like Alf Garnett very quickly. People say, "Oh, he's a racist, he's a racist." So, well, actually, he's—I think he's Jewish. Is he Alf Garnett? I'm not sure. But if they was to show a series of all the retakes because they couldn't stop laughing, mm. black and white, you know, crying with laughter. Now, wouldn't that be better for society? I think the secret is to laugh at racism, but. If you laugh at racism now, you're accused of being racist. Like, no, we're laughing at the irony. It yeah. doesn't make us racist. We're actually taking the piss out of racism. Yeah. But everyone, I mean, yeah, you, you, so you went into jail where, you know, people didn't get their feelings hurt and you couldn't get arrested for writing something naughty on the internet. And then you come out, it's like, fucking hell, I, I can't say anything or I'm going to offend somebody. And that's now a crime. I find it's a little bit, it's gone berserk in this country of what you can say and can't say. And, well, that's not politically correct. And fucking hell, you can't call someone coloured no more. you got to call them black. Well, I thought black was offensive. I thought coloured was a nice man. You're coloured. You've got a bit of colour in you. You know, vibrant. You're black. You're blacklisted. You know, but I didn't know that when I come home. I thought, well, that seems quite odd mm. that you're using that. Uh, but it's, it's to get your head around that or to understand uh, people's perception outside now, and you have to respect it, of course, as well. But... You can be married to a blackbird. You can have a black girlfriend, wife. You can have black children. I've got black uh, uh, nieces and nephews and such. But if you said something, you'd still be considered racist. Yeah, I know. I mean... The media want us to hate each other. Yeah. They do. They don't want us to get along. They don't want harmony. They love it when we're at each other's throats. And that's the easiest thing to throw in the mix. There's 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 a social grenade. Bam, racism. Yeah, yeah. People jump on mm. the negativity rather than the positive. So Norwegians are very, very liberal in terms of forgiveness. So you'll see a judge shake up someone's hand who's killed killed a Laker students on that island, you remember? Oh, fucking hell, yes. Nutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, the, he, he, he come up on his boat, didn't he? And then went on a big spree. Right, and then, do you know, the judges come down out of their bench mm. to, and they're shaking the geezer's hand because that's their culture. And I watch something, and I don't have TV. Well, I've got one now, but I don't watch it. I can't tell you the last time I watched it. But I didn't have TV for 20 years. So I see a documentary about him. Some of the mothers were saying, well, we have to forgive because if we don't forgive, it's going to kill us and eat us up. Mm. Um, Norwegians have got the best economy in Europe and they've got the lowest offending rate. Rehabilitation is the best as well. You have to ask yourself what they're doing right and what we're we doing wrong. We're full of hatred where they're full of forgiveness. Big thing. My friend was locked up out there many years ago, um, but he was having phone in his cell. He could have uh, a lady of the night come in to visit him once a month. Really? Oh, you're talking 36 years ago. Fuck. That was happening then. I'm surprised that weren't encouraging crime. I <laughs> know uh... <laughs> oh, you had to pay for it, of course, out of your money, but... Um, uh... He was having that then. Now, what have we got? We haven't got conjugal visits here. We've got men that are uh, helping themselves out. We've got men who are transgenders now going into 
women's prisons. It's completely insane. When you think, I mean, if, if someone 10 years ago had said to me, right, in 10 years' time, if you're a geezer and you commit whatever crime and you get a lump of bird, identify as a female, you haven't got to get your cock chopped off. Yeah, no. just, just put a dress on, wear makeup and say, I want to be called Sally. And I'll tell you why I use the name Sally, because we're going to give that dog some publicity. Sally Dixon. He's a geezer from round here. He's been banged up for nonsense. his stepdaughters and other people. It's in the news, so you can cross-reference that, check it, fact check it. Sally Dixon, it's a geezer. It's a geezer that dresses as a woman. He went to a female jail. He got yeah. more about it. In the end, yeah. they managed to get him into a men's jail. But initially, a man got sent to a female prison because he wanted to identify as a woman. I've got to tell you, if I've got a bit of bird again... I'll get myself a pair of tits and I'm getting over there. Yeah. Sit straight away. And I'll say, right, listen, I won't be so I want to, I want to be called Kevin still. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd rather be around women than mm. a load of bleeding men. You know, I say that lightheartedly, but I mean, where would you rather do your bird? Around a load of pretty women? Well, not all of them pretty, of course, but there's some right good sorts in, Nick. <laughs> now, I'd rather be over there anyway. <laughs> Get me here done. Yeah. So Sally Dixon was onto something there. I was onto something, but I think it's for the wrong reasons. Oh, he's a, he's a dog. Yeah, he's scum. a dog, and, and like, yeah, we can laugh and joke about it, but the bottom line is to send a man to a female jail because he wants to identify as a female when he's not is ridiculous. What happens about when he's he's still got man's faults, he's, he's still in... I don't know if they shower the women. I think they do have their separate quarters, but that'll look change in time. Mm. They'll Sally, end up together. Sally Dixon, the only woman to wake up in jail each morning with an erection. Because <laughs> <laughs> you meant to take medication to stop me getting a popcorn, stop me getting a stiffy. Ah. All right. Take your testosterone away. Take your testosterone. But I mean, you just put, you don't take the tablet, do you? But it is happening. And when I was away in Franklin, many in 2000 and something, a pal of mine in there then, I'd met through the system. He was, they kept him in the block because he had a pair of tits. He was going through the home, home, hormone treatment and they wouldn't put him on the man's landings with the tits. Yeah, I went back on a recall and I see a Spanish geezer walking around the yard on the paedophile wings, on the protection wings, shall I say. And, my God, I had to look twice. I thought, is that a bloke wiggling like that? And he's got a pair of tits. And he's got long hair. Get his number. <laughs> <laughs> Senior Willie. I'll see you in a minute, mate. <laughs> so, yeah, that was a bit of a shock for me. And then, uh, and that's just, just that's in a B-cat, C-cat. Mm. So let's let's get back before you went into jail, because obviously you've got some real in-depth knowledge about the prison system, the judicial system, the miscarriages of justice. But before you went to jail, and a lot, see, some of these bits and pieces people have heard before, some won't, but we've got to get it in because it's your story and, it, and it's important. So before you went to jail, you're a young lad, you're performing as Norman Wisdom and Frank Spencer in front of your mum, you're happy-go-lucky, got into boxing at a young age. Mm. Your brother went to school and he had to wear like a neck brace, head brace thing. Mr Magoo crash helmet. A Mr Magoo crash helmet. So that put you in a position where you you were fighting off the kids that were taking the piss out of your brother, which is a natural response to that kind yeah. of behaviour. Yeah. Any other kid would do that. So to me it sounds like you was, you was, a, normal, you was a normal young lad and you certainly weren't 
destined for contract killing. No, or prison. Nah. Bob McGill was the guy that got murdered. So a lot of people will probably want to know, like, who actually was Bob McGill? Bob McGill was a local face in the area. And what what was the area? Um, Harrow, Wembley, Northwood, Ryslip, Ryslip Manor, those areas. Tough cookie. Made no bones about it. Do 50 press-ups with a 14-year-old boy on his back. Probably quite powerful to do that, haven't you? Mm. Yeah, he was, a, he was a tough cookie. So Bob McGill, was he a fighting man? Yeah, protection. Right, so he was gangster. He was a real, real... Bit of work. Bit of work, yeah. Tough guy, wouldn't want to cross him, which will stand to reason if somebody had a problem with him, there would be only one way to deal with him. I know of people and of a person that has, has had a, uh, uh, who had a run-in with him. Mm. Um, he's not here to defend himself and to say that, but I know the outcome of that, of the two men, and it was a, a, a fantastic board. It went on for ages. But, uh, yeah, he wasn't one to be messed. There wouldn't be many people who would go up to him at all. So big face back in the day, heavy geezer. And did you know each other personally? Never met him. Didn't even know him. Never even met him before? Never even met him before. Wow. So it'd be interesting to hear down the line how all these dots were incorrectly connected. The, what has come out, so I'm not allowed to mention my co-defendant's name who I was charged with for the murder. Ah. Okay, because he's been in touch with the Home Office and I'm endangering his life. But the previous times I've mentioned him on the other podcast can stay. But now anything after that, uh, I can't mention his name. So can we, can we not pretend this is backdated? <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, done in 2021. 2021. So... Uh, I can't mention him no more, but there's so much come out now that quite clearly shows, um, for instance, my co-defendant's mother was slapped by McGill's sister-in-law, uh, or sister, for, come to me in a minute, but slapped his mother's face. McGill's niece was living with my co-defendant's mother and them for about two weeks, so there's there's proper beef there. Um and there was a motive there for killing him, which was hidden from the jury and kept from the jury for the trials. Would you say Bob McGill was a nice man? Yeah, to those he liked and loved. Mm. You know, like like a Pat Tate character. I mean, I know you've got fanatics out there, but it was, it was well documented that Pat Tate was a bully and it was only a matter of time, from what I've heard. So he was rumoured to walk into people's homes with chainsaws and say, I'm now a partner in your business. Oh, Bob McGill was? Mm. Okay, so he was, he was one of those. So probably it was only a matter of time before someone got their own back on him. He walked into a pub and said, I don't pay for drinks in here, and spat in the barmaid's face. Next thing you know, red bags produced from under the bar. In that red bag was a sawn-off shotgun. You are paying for your drinks in here, and that ain't going on in here. He knew that he, he's learnt the error of his ways. Some battles aren't worth fighting. Mm. And you pick your, every good general picks his battlefield, doesn't he? And he, he thought that was a battlefield he weren't worth fighting for. But I know that actually happened because I know the person who pulled the gun out on him. It wasn't like he was a, uh, you know, a pillar of, the, of society, you know, going out doing good. He was going out doing bad. And you get wrongly convicted for murdering him when you didn't. And it was always going to come in the end. You, you bully enough people, someone's going to take umbrage one day and go, right, enough. You're going in the ground or you're going into prison. Mm. Simple as that especially with the level of the, the, the extortion and demanding that he was doing. 
But I felt difficult saying talking about him like that because he's dead and it's his family that suffered now by me talking about him like that. So I wouldn't want to stoke the fire in relation to that for their family because I know it must be difficult for them, but the facts are facts. Yeah, you've you've certainly had to live with consequences of somebody's action. So you've got to think about you as well. So that's who Bob McGill is. Who is Christopher Spackman? So Spackman nicked me when I was 18, 19, 20. He nicked me for ringing cars. I wasn't actually ringing cars with the people he nicked me with. And uh, I had a bit of an altercation with him. He came into a cell, gobbed off. And I got, I jumped off the bed. He slammed the door on my face and said, I'll have you one day, Lane. Because, um, like I said, I wasn't doing what he thought I was doing with the people he originally arrested. So he released me. But what Chris Spackman was actually doing, he was showing the lengths that he would go to. He had six or seven police informers that he set up on his books that he was getting money to pay them, that he was giving them the money and that's giving it straight back to him. One of the girls he was forcing to have sex with, well, we know that's pretty paramount now, isn't it? It's gone, there's quite a bit of that going on about within the police force, of course. It must be very hard for those that do a hard job, uh, protect our children. You know, we have to respect the police. I have to say that because some of the stuff they do, you'd pick the phone up if your own woman went missing, wouldn't you? I say this quite frequently. If your daughter got kidnapped, the first person, the first people you would call would be the police. There we go. So we have to respect them for that. And they've got a difficult job. Uh, it's good and bad and everywhere, isn't there? So we'll leave that there. But Spackman was a bad egg. So he was forcing women to have sex with him. He had his own cannabis factory. He was observed on the camera under surveillance to be watering the plants. Um, and so on. He was a real bad egg. He had live ammunition in his drawer when he got nicked. Um, he was reported to have made false statements and written them out in uh, David Smith's name. He was the original suspect who was nicked by my co-defendant. And Spackman then uh, was coercing the case and forcing the trial. Smith got 120 hours, I think, community service for malicious wounding with intent and kidnapping. And Donald got 18 years. Wow. And Spackman was the, head, the, the officer in charge of that case. So in amongst all this, who's Roger Vincent? I can't mention him, but uh, he was arrested for this case and he was released by a judge without giving any evidence or any evidence heard about him. So what happened? The trial got stopped. The gentleman you just mentioned was released halfway by the judge's direction. And you'll think, hold on a minute, how can that be? You were sh reportedly shown off a gun in a pub. You... When you got arrested by Spackman, you said, look, this has all got out of hand. I've been bragging that I did it, giving it the large. He wasn't seen at work until 10 o'clock in the morning. Who did the the security checks on that? Spackman. Spackman turned around and told my solicitors and the court that all the camera footage for the Ministry of Defence had been destroyed after six months. All the signing and signing out books had been destroyed. Absolute rubbish when you think of it now. But, of course, the judge didn't question it. Um, there was other stuff in relation to my co-defendant in that he was having special visits in police, by the police in prison. Um, he's made statements saying he gave evidence for Spackman. Spackman went up to visit him in Woodhill Prison when I was arrested. Um, I've got the confidential chats in that book, fitted up and fighting back, that my co-defendant had and said he wants to broker a deal with the police, whereby his charges are dropped and he's supplying information on 
a number of murders that he said I committed. And as a result of that, I continuously get investigated for these murders. And I said, well, why don't you go and speak to him about it then? Because he seems to tell people that he did them. And now he's telling the police that I did them. Yeah. So that was Spackman's relationship in this case with me. A real bad egg. Uh, he always had, like, the Sheriff of Nottingham look. You know, like, shifty. And really, he's little John. He's a fucking little John, and he's a good hiding in a bath, and I'm not sure in which order. Mm. But not by me, and I say that joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he sounds like, he just sounds the pits, literally fucking both sides of the fence. He wants to, he wants to be the gangster and the grass. That and, is what he wants to do. And the one that sets people up for doing things they haven't even done. He's like the worst type of human being on the planet. Loads of people have come forward to him and said, he fitted me up, he'd done this, he'd done that. The biggest name there is in Watford, everyone's frightened of him because he fits people up. It, and he's he done, he done a bit of bird himself for, for actual corruption since. Four years, 160 grand he nicked, 180 grand off the police, yeah. Terrible how he did it. He was falsifying accounts, falsifying statements, practising his signature on driving licences, opening up bank accounts, going down the births and death certificate office, getting uh, births, getting certificates and going opening little accounts and all stuff like that, really in depth. I mean, it's such a shame that at the time that he got convicted for all that corruption, that anything he'd said prior to that was completely discredited. Yeah, I mean, even it now. It should be. I, I met with a leading figure in this country who is very high up in the criminal justice system. And he's read my book and he said, your case stinks of corruption. I mean, they're hiring retired police officers to come in and do an investigation in my case who go back into retirement after they finish. Hmm. So there is an op investigation called Operation Cactus and it was uh, a review of whether or not they could recharge my co-defendant for the murder of Robert McGill. The police officers that were tasked to do that were from the same police force of the police force that convicted me, which was Hertfordshire Police. The police officers that were in charge of my investigation refused to be interviewed by their own colleagues. So you've got the Chief Constable of Police saying, all right, we've springboarded this investigation, get off and interview these people. They refused to be interviewed, uh, which I find is quite bizarre, and the police officers conducting that investigation were refused access to all the paperwork to the real sensitive stuff. What does that tell you? Mm. How can you refuse your own officers that are tasked with investigating a, a, a murder and refuse them access to the paperwork and so on and so forth? And that, that it's all in my book. How was Bob McGill murdered? He was shot with a shotgun five times. Five times? Four to the body, one to the head. And is it known how many firearms were used in that murder? One. Uh, the men emerged from the woods. Uh, one stood behind the gunman. The gentleman standing behind with the gunman was apparently the witnesses say, I could look out like that. So there was an eyewitness as well? Two eyewitnesses. And um, they turned around and said that the second man turned and ran into the woods. He's got a bald head like you, Liam. It couldn't have been me, because they say I was a gunman with dark hair. Except the gunman had... Shoulder length hair, wavy and curly. My hair was pretty much like this to a degree. Uh, but they, they're pretty good at uh, chopping and changing things. So uh, they changed one of the witnesses' description from not fitting me to fitting me. And it's all Spackman, Spackman, Spackman. 
And Spackman was at the centre of my conviction because he signed off the Holmes database, which is a computerised system where the first phone call about the murder goes down, reaction, police go there. Well, he signed that off. And I've got letters in my possession from Hertfordshire Police and Hertfordshire CPS to say, contact the officer in the case for disclosure, Spackman. Contact the officer in, the, in charge of the case for exhibits, Spackman. And yet when they looked at Spackman's conviction to see if it had undermined my conviction, they said his, my, his part in my case was minor. Well, it weren't minor, because he's flying up to prison to visit people in prison, my co-defendant, unscheduled, apparently. In your heart of hearts, why do you think Spackman went for you? Right, one, my co-defendant and Smith were his police informers. So they're always going to get out, aren't they? Then he went to prison as a result of him getting banged up. He didn't have no one to protect him. Um, largest in investigation half your police have ever, ever had. So you get pressure from the MPs, pressure from the public. That goes to the MPs, isn't it? The MPs go to the police force. The police force go to the uh, the, the soldiers on the force. Uh, they get heavily involved, heavily entrenched with the hours they've put in. And they have to get a conviction. They have to get a conviction. My God, all these hours I've put in, all the money wasted, largest investigation. They will force a conviction, as they did with me. My co-defendant was released to go on and commit another murder. So what they've done, they've allowed someone to go free and murder again. Mm. Of someone who'll still be alive now. But my co-defendant dictated the day he was going to be released. And he got out on the exact day he, was, he said he was going to get out and the judge acquitted him. Again, so he knew he was getting out. Shocking. Now, there's there's obviously more intricate details, and I'm going to put this up again. So in, in the book, there's everything you need to know in detail is in the book. But if we was to go through every single last detail, this would be a 24-hour yeah. 24, 24 yeah, yeah, podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I, I encourage everyone to read that book. Uh, let's go to the trial now. You get found guilty. Now, as that trial is unravelling in front of your very eyes... What were you thinking in yet? Because you 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 got remanded, then went to trial, and then you're watching it play out in front of you. Was you thinking to yourself, "Well, now the jury are going to see with their own eyes that I'm being set up and I'm going to walk," or did you think, "Shit, all these people are, are allowed to speak as freely as they like. It's all lies, and I'm banging trouble now." Well, I knew I was getting a guilty when they turned around and told the jury I gripped a gun inside a bag, and that gun was a Mossberg pump action, and the deceased was killed from Mossberg pump action. And I knew there was lightning because I knew I hadn't. And I said to my mum, listen, you better prepare yourself. I'm going to get a guilty here because they're lying. My co-defendant was kept in different prisons around the country where he was having police visits up and down the country. And I thought that was wrong. And the IRA boy says to me, uh, and Andy Russell, he threw the helicopter into Gartry and got Johnny Kendall and Draper out. Um, he said, it's not right. He said, why isn't your co-defendant here with you? He said, they're keeping you apart, Kevin, for a reason. And, uh, and then it all came out years later. And when you got the guilty verdict, when it actually hit home, or, or did it hit home? Was you in a complete state of shock? How did you feel when you got the guilty verdict? Well, I turned to the jury and said, you made a terrible mistake, I never did this. Uh, I remember going down the stairs and I got back to the Belmarsh and I had the governor waiting for me with a load of screws thinking I was on kickoff. I went up to the hatch, I said, all right, give me something to help me get me head down, will you? It's all I want. One night, never get me head down. I'm going to be sitting there looking at the ceiling all night. We can't do that, they said. I said, I've just been found guilty for murder. I've been sentenced to life. Can you just give me something to get me head down? No, I said, I'll tell you what I says. If you don't check me in all night, 
every minute of the night. I said, you might find me stringing up in the morning. I said, and you can tell him you didn't give me a sleeper to get me head down. Sleeper come straight over. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I went back, got me head down. But I was sitting there and I was thinking, my God, this is my life now for the foreseeable future. Did you feel suicidal? No, I felt upset for my children, my family, my loved ones and friends and family, you know, so that was very difficult. And I thought, my God, how have I ended up in this? What have I done to deserve this? What has my mother and my family done to deserve this? But then years later, I adopted the attitude that life shuffles, like life, you get a card dealt to you, didn't you? Life shuffles the cards and we have to play with the best hand we get. And I believe that for different reasons, I'm here now doing what I'm doing in life. Uh, man, this is my hand. I mean, you've got a hell of an attitude, mate. I mean, wow. I mean, some people have a bad day at work and they come home and the whole family has to fucking hear about it. Like, you always seem to be laughing and joking and smiling. Like I said, one of the first things, like, you've got a wicked sense of humour. Is that what got you through? Yes. You have to have characters in prison that are good for the wing, good for morale, mm. happy-go-lucky, or if there's some real bad atrocities going on in there, they won't make a stand for the fellow interns because the prison officers cannot protect you. Fact. They cannot protect you in there. There's areas where you can't be protected, things that are going on in there. So you have to take the law into your own hands because otherwise you're going to get severely tortured, hurt or killed. Um, you saw some heavy things in there, didn't you? I did. So in, within prison, you'll get staff who say it's a worker relationship. We'll lose this place if they want. If they want, they'll take it. We can't do nothing about it. Fact. But after the cons, they ain't got any bollocks about them nowadays. They don't bang the door. They're fucking, oh, God, they're going to take my TV off of them. Really? All right. So in, when I first started off, there was a lot of camaraderie, a lot of the old school prisoners. Right, good. You know, if you were, don't matter where you were from, but if you weren't from England and someone bullied you, leave the geezer alone. Fuck's sake, what's the matter with you? If you came in and you were from Nigeria or whoever, you go, all right, mate, where are you from? Do you want a cup of tea? Have you eaten? And that would be the whole theme of the wing. Oh, such and such is from your area. I'll go and get him. You might know, you know, it was about taking care of each other. We were one. If you was in the block and you'd been dragged down there, it don't matter where you're from again or what colour you are, I want to go and see a fucking Fred, Ishmael or whatever you come from. I want to see you make sure you ain't beating them up when we're taking them a dinner down and all. That's unity. Mm. That was closeness. And then it all changed with the postal cold wars, young kids coming in have killed each other over a postal code and then they convert into Islam because they're dying to fall out of their coat. The fellow they've killed's brother was in the prison or the other gang who's in the prison. So we're going to sign up to Islam. We can't attack each other. But you know what? We will attack each other. We go down the mosque on a Friday and we set about each other with knives on. And I mean, that happened in Whitemore, three weeks on the trot. There was that many screws in the church, or the mosque, as they called it at the time, for their service. Then there was cons. And believe it or not, it went off every week. Stabbings and everything just went off because that's the only place they could get to each other. So then I see a massive divide. And that's very difficult for a lot of lads that are in there that were Muslim or weren't, uh, who disbelieved in their religion and didn't bother no one and peaceful, to those that was manipulating it and abusing it. And that then caused a divide. And now you've got the napalm 
the boiling of plastic bottles and batteries in the on the stove. And if you haven't got that, they'd get butter or olive oil and gear. So I've seen all of that. I've seen people have that thrown on them and multiple stabbed to bits and slashed and all sorts of carnage. And all that came in with Operation Trident. And Operation Trident was with the young black kids that were killing each other on the streets. Their parents went to the police and said, can you stop this? Our kids are killing each other. And that's how it came in. And then they all came into the prison system. And that's why it's gone to shit. What we see is the old lags going home. The old timers, the old school criminals. You'll put a bit of time into something and they would be successful at it. They wouldn't be robbing you for your trainers, pouring hot water over your feet to make you send money to an account. They're scumbags. Now, if they were doing that, when I, we, it wouldn't have happened when we were first away. Then you go down to the lower categories and it's happening because they've all the new generation have come in and they've brought street, their street life into a life of having respect for people. You see all this conversion to Islam in jail. Do you think people were, were conver converting to Islam out of faith or out of fear? Fear. I've got pals of mine who have converted. All right? uh, one fella converted. He was Jamaican. He converted. He was going to train to be a barrister. He came home, still carried on with it, but he did it for the right reasons. And a few other people, I can say, generally. <clears throat> but overall, it's do it or you're getting done. Or And that is it now in there. They tried with me. I just said, no, I'm going to fuck off. That ain't happening. Well, so someone come up to you and said you're going to convert to Islam? Yeah, no, it's a Kevin that wanted to read the Quran, so I'm not reading it. So I'm not having none of it. Right? So is that how they, they subtly, or they, they tell you? Oh, they do tell some people. I did a radio interview and I said, look, what you've got to do, you've got to bring back internment. You've got anybody who's arrested for terrorism crimes, you need to put them in an army camp. Segregation. So they can, haven't got to throw oil over someone's face because they're playing music in the gym or cooking bacon in the kitchen. Well, they've been cooking bacon in the kitchens for hundreds of years. If things are getting done on the wing, down the block, in the gym, that are, that are considered haram... They're enforcing their own Sharia law in there. Oh, they are definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't. It wasn't on any of the lands that I was on, but they, it has, it's happening now, and it was starting to happen in Whitemore when I was in Franklin. I was told it was happening down there. So I've looked at the numbers, like turning to faith in jail, Hindu, Sikhs, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christianity. That that doesn't seem to be happening. It seems to be Islam is the one that's skyrocketing through the roof. Yeah, skyrocketing through the roof. I was really shocked to see her, hear some Sikhs converting because Sikhs are martyrs. You know, they, they believe in being martyrs. They believe in defending the weak and, you know, fighting for the right. And to see a Sikh convert, I thought, my God, that shows the level of force that's in there now. Mm. And fear. Fear. Terrible places. I don't know what they're going to do, but if they don't change it soon... It's just going to keep getting worse. How do you think you kept your head together in, in that place for that long with that level of violence around you? Trained really hard. Drank. Uh, and I had a lot of support. A ridiculous amount of visitors. I went to Woodhill once. I think I, had, I was there seven weeks. I had a visit every day apart from one day you couldn't have a visit. And it was always different people. I only I see my mum twice in seven weeks whilst I was down there. And the rest of that, it was a different visit every day. It was quite a good visiting list. Are you fearless or have you got a good front? 
I'm not fake. The fact you didn't convert speaks volumes. I sold the fuck off. Mm. I mean, David Bieber was staring at me, telling me he'd been asked to kill me. David Bieber shot the old, the old Bill, didn't he? Up up in Yorkshire. And then he tried to kill, cut a woman screw's head off in Long Larton. I like Dave. Thank fuck he liked me, eh? Don't <laughs> <laughs> no, about you liking him. Oh, that's a result, Dave. He come up to me, goes, Kevin, I've been asked mm. to kill you. Mm. He said, but I don't want you to find out and think I'm plotting against you. He said, because I don't want to fall out of you. He said, and I like you. I said, well, I like you, David. Thank you for telling me. Mm. Well, that was a touch. Um, but I had that. I had three people tell me I was asked to kill me in prison. None of them tried it. I never had anybody ever try it on me in prison. But I, I've had been shot. The geezer pulled a gun at me and I said, what are you going to do with that? He said, I'm going to shoot you. I went, go on then. And he shot me. But my two mates were breakdancing. So you can say fearless. Is it stupidity? But I think half of it is like, I won't back down me. I'd rather get a good idea. Mm. And I mean, I used to say to the screws, go and get your kit on. And they go, well, I said, yeah. The... So, so it happened once. So it was bending up Matthew Williams. He escaped out of Parkhurst. We have a couple of fellas. And they went in and wrapped him up because they was frightened of him because he could poison you. He's real clever with stuff like that. And I got on the bell and the screw came to the door. I said, do you know when two boxers are in the ring? And the bell goes off. He went, yeah. I said, the bell's just gone off. Go and get kitted up. Walked to the back of the cell, took a jump off with my mum and knitted me, an Aaron Wall jumper. She's real good at knitting my mum. I said, they're waiting for them to come in. They knew they had to go and get kitted up because when the doors opened, it was going off anyway. So... That sense, I thought, you've wrapped someone up, we don't deserve it, let's have a fight. I'll bring it to you now. They didn't like that because I'm bringing the fight to them. Mm. So get your kit on, we're going to be fighting. To them, they're thinking, fuck, normally we're going in on people. And normally people are like, it's just like a bit of a free-for-all, we're going to wrap them up, we're going to get the shield on them and all the rest of it. And that never deterred me. I think it's because I was so angry at being in prison. I've always been like it as a kid, and the injustice, I won't be bullied. I will not be bullied. I don't give a monkeys how big you are. If you can pull my head off and shit down my neck, you will not bully me and I will fight you. Yeah, violence doesn't seem to phase you at all. No, I've been stabbed, shot, all sorts. You shot in the head, weren't you? Mm. On, on, the, on the way to uh, one of your security contracts, mm. the alarm went off, you was called out. When you turned up, someone pulled a gun and went for you. I turned up, I didn't have to go, but I'm not sending the lads there and I wouldn't go, I wouldn't do something I, wouldn't, I expect them to do. Mm. Not that little arsehole. He better hope I don't ever overturn this conviction because I will bump into him and I'll say, guess what? Me and you are going to have a little bit of a move about. <laughs> so he got convicted for attempted murder? Well, he handed himself into the police and gave him the gun. And then was writing letters to me from prison, on prison letters, saying, can't, one of, can't we sort this out? One of us is going to die. I didn't mean to shoot you. The stupid little bastard. Then comes to court and goes, not guilty. And prison officers give evidence against him, landlords give evidence against him, witnesses give evidence against him. I, for the record, and they can check this out, was not at court. I got arrested at my home the day I got shot at 2.30 in the morning because my mate was on a curfew, so we had to get... We were driving around looking for him, you know. I had put all cotton buds in my head, stopped the bleeding and that. We're still pouring out, dripping out. But anyway, that, after I got shot... Um, I took one of his mates with us, found out some addresses where he's meant to be, got my pal, went back to look for him. My car was swooped on by the old builder, stripped the car, there's nothing in the block car. And uh, I thought, well, the game's up. My mate was on a curfew. So I took him home, I went home. My house was surrounded by armed police, lit up like a football pitch, floodlights. Armed police come out. I'd been shot. I was then taken to a hospital. Uh, then it came to court. 
As soon as I've been shot, gave a statement. I said, yeah, I've been shot. Don't know the person. Don't know who it is. Never met him before. Told him what had happened. That was it. Comes to court. I'm not at court. Judge issues the warrant for my arrest. I turn up at about half past 11. Get there. This prick has been telling the court that I was threatening to kill him outside the court, doing this to him. I looked at the cameras. The judge thought, well, it's a bit hard because we've had to subpoena Mr Lane to get here with a threat of imprisonment. We checked the cameras, he wasn't out there. The prison officers said, no, there was no one outside the court doing that. He's sitting in the dock doing this to me. There's two, two of them in the dock. He's doing this. He's the prick that's written to me of all these prison letters. I think, fucking hell, you've now got not guilty, you stupid bastard. I couldn't help him. I know I threatened to beat him up when he was in the dock. I said, I'm going to smash your fucking head in you. Because he's doing this to me. Right. Admittedly, I turned around and I said, he's fucking shot me. I did say that. Uh, I don't mind saying that because he's put it in writing. Mm. And it was temporary, you know, fair. And I said, I'm going to smash your head in, you little bastard. And uh, I said, but I don't know the other fellow. I said, I've never seen him. I said, I do not know him. He got a not guilty. But I couldn't help you if it was you based on what I've just told you. I wanted you out, didn't I? So I could come and find you. Mm. Yeah. So that's what happened on that. He got a guilty, he got a seven and went away. Uh, and the other one got a not guilty. Is that what he got, seven? Because you get, you get uh, seven and a half gram shot, didn't you, which is used for pigeons and stuff like that, or game. And he shot me with that. And it went in my head. And looked up, thought you bastard, he's pointing at me again. Thought I'd better become Linford Christie. <laughs> so, so he's obviously out of jail now. He's out now, right? And he was gobbing off a little while ago when I was getting the ump over it, right? And because uh, I'm on probation, I have to be careful. I thought, you know what? If you don't shut your mouth, I want to go live and say, do you know what? You little fucking bastard. Why don't we get it, me and you get it on for charity, pay per view, and we give all the money to charity or you, whatever. And I'll fight you. So you know where he is, what he's up to? I know exactly where he is. I know exactly where he lives. And I know exactly where he drinks. Because I'm on life licence. He's got a squeeze. He's got to be. <laughs> but when I overturn my conviction, mm. I will just be standing outside where he is one day and say, I want to speak to you, don't I? Or I'll go around where he lives... And I won't say where he lives, because then it dictate I do know exactly where he lives. And I will knock on that front door and say, come out here. You're meant to be a boxer. I've had a little go myself. Let's do what men do best, eh? And get it right on. So, in your mind, that score ain't settled yet? Never. Never settled. When I see him, and I've overturned his conviction, which will be soon, I'm going to weigh him right in with my hands. And I'm going to really cause him some pain. But I have to have my conviction squashed first because I can't think like that until it is. Now you've got to calm down for a little while. Yeah, I'm only, mess <laughs> I'm only messing about. <laughs> Fucking hell. But he stopped, he stopped gobbing off because I've had some pals of mine saying, Kevin, that little, say little bastard, I don't know. He's saying, so that bastard's gobbing off again, Kevin. If we see him, I said, oh, don't worry yourself about it. I'm not bothered about it. I'm bothered about him shooting me and gobbing off now which will be rectified one day when I'm 80 or one day when I'm fucking whatever. He'll be dead by the time he's in anyway. Him. Mm. Not through someone killing him, through sticking too much shit up his nose and thinking he's a fucking gangster, where all he is is a fucking cardboard dustman. Oh, so he's still playing the gangster now? Oh, he's playing the gangster, the wanker. But he knows I'm fucking not happy with him and he's shut his mouth lately. Unless, of course, you want to come out and have a bit of a straightener with me and we we'll do it for, for charity, 
I'll have it with you tomorrow. And I'll have it with you. Bring a mate. I'll have it with him and all. Oh, don't get me started. Well, if he, agree, if he agrees to it, then it's fair game. Fair game. Let's get it on. Mm, what's his name? Hobbs. Hobbs? Jason Hobbs. Jason Hobbs, there's your offer. You fucking wanker. Let's get it on for charity and let's have a fight. You heard the man. Put your cock on the block. Put your gun away. Put your hands up. And I will fight yeah, you. Yeah, and accept the offer. Please do. Yeah, Please let's, do. I hope you do. Because I've been thinking about you for a lot of years. Yeah, I, I hope he does. And the funny thing is, you look... You've got an angelic face. You look like a butter wouldn't melt, but you're a fucking handful, wouldn't you? I was in my day. <laughs> uh, I was in my day. You're an handful. I was in my day, yeah. I was in my day. I'm a bit old now, but I, I'm not as fast as I was. And your morals, you 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 seem strong on principles and morals, even though one time that got you in a spot of bother because the retaliation, you got the wrong bloke, didn't you? Yeah, so I'm going to be truthful about that. I, I've been slagging myself off by saying I got the wrong bloke just to bring shame upon myself because I've met the victim since I kidnapped him and I felt real bad about what I did to him because it really changed his life in a terrible way, Liam. What, terrible. What did you do to him? Well, I held an office block hostage waiting for him to turn up and then he was put forward by his work colleagues and people in the area. But it seems like he was a ruse. He wasn't the person who actually did what they said he'd done. So I just tell people I got the wrong person. Well, I didn't. I got the right person who was put forward for it. And the only reason I'm telling you that now is because I'm going to be doing a potential documentary of Channel 4 in relation to restorative justice and meeting a victim who I kidnapped. But I did kidnap him. I took him away. I took him out of his front seat. Severely bashed him with an iron bar around the head and stuff legs, arms actually, top of his body. And then I took him to some woods and I ran him over a few times, went over him with a car. And then I took him to London, bashed him about a bit more around the head, sprayed him over his gas and threw him in a canal. What injuries did he sustain? He couldn't walk, he had fractures to his legs. Is that when you was running him over? Yeah, he couldn't remember his own name for a week in hospital and he had a number in his pocket. And they found that number, and because I'd taken him, he'd have been missing for a number of days now. There was a search for him, and he'd been kidnapped. So it was quite a big search. And then they said, "Oh fuck me, yeah, uh, isn't this? We got someone in hospital. And we found this number. Are you missing anyone?" I said, "Yeah, we are. We're missing such and such, such and such." And so that's how come. And you got convicted for that. I went to prison. The jury came back with a decision and said they made a wrong decision, and the judge said there's going to be immediate appeal immediate bail application and I no, no I didn't give evidence I did do it I'm happy with the sentence you give me the judge said I took the law into my own hands because the gentleman not the gentleman kidnapped but the person who did do it was meant to have threatened I was led to believe up until we, the gentleman I kidnapped called Will Guilfoy which lovely fella he told me that we was told it was a woman and a baby no it was a woman who was having a baby and this not Will but the fellow who did do it Put the knife to her and her belly. Yeah, that's important to, to to quickly interject now and put that into context where you got, obviously, somebody might come in the podcast now and just hear how you've hit some geezer with an iron bar, run him over, broke his legs, threw him in the river. The guy that Kev done that to had allegedly put a knife up to a pregnant woman's stomach. Yeah, and her face. And her face. And so that was who you thought you was torturing. Yeah. And they nicked £100,000 worth of equipment from the company that my mate was a factory distributor to and partners to. They went to the police. The police didn't have enough evidence. 
these fellas went back to the offices, tried to get in the offices, the doors were locked, and then they started threatening the people, threatened the girl with the knife. I then get the call, because I had a security company years ago. I was called in to take him away, and uh, I did. But he no. wasn't the wrong person. He was the person that was put up for it. And so since then, so that this is interesting, the restorative justice. So you've essentially tortured a bloke. You've got a guilty verdict. You've done your time, done your bird. How did it come about that you and him ended up in a room talking with each other? So restorative justice uh, contacted, so would I be prepared to meet the victim? And I said, yes, I would. So are they, they're obviously mediators, but does the victim have to request that or do they think this would be a good idea? How does that work? They think it would have been a good idea for him and me because he, it, I mean, he wouldn't get into a car on the front seat. He he wouldn't go shopping until it was in the middle of the morning, like four in the morning, so there's less people around. Uh, if he got into the car and he didn't know you and he started going somewhere he didn't know, he'd get out of the car with the lights and just do one. So that hiding basically gave him PTSD? Massive. He'd become an alcoholic. He turned to drugs. He slept on the street. I'm fucking ashamed of what I'd done to him because it was him. I, I, I say ashamed. I mean, I'd done what I'd done thinking it was the right person. Mm. Like I say, I was told. But to see him afterwards, you can't help but feel shame because you think you're a nice person. And I ruined your life for many years. And now we're friends. He's a, he, we don't see each other as much as we wish because I'm so busy, but we speak. What was, um, it, what was it like the first time you was actually in a room with him? God, Benny, I didn't know where to put my face. No. Seeing him shake, get upset. He proper, proper was proper not right. And uh, But do you know the best thing of it? Afterwards we left together and I give him a lift home. <laughs> exchange numbers. The exchange numbers. I gave him a hug. I really apologised and spoke to him. And did you? How did you feel when you looked him in the eye? I felt that I'd ruined a man's life, and I could never do enough to repay him. So when I get a right few quid, because he's not on the best of times, he's not skinned, but he's not on the best of times. I will make it right with him. I've got to make it right with a few people I've taken away and done things to. One in particular, only one. One more I've got to make right. So two people I've taken away. Uh, I took one person away once and did some things to him because I just wanted to know where his power was. I shouldn't have done what I'd done to him, but I did. Uh, People are going to want to know what you've done to him. Okay. <clears throat> I took him from a pub. You lined yourself up for this one, Kev. Yeah, well, because I'm not proud of it. Um, but in the day, back in the day, I believed if you've done something, then my punishment's never feared the crime. Uh, I took him away. I took him to the woods and uh, he wasn't able to walk after. I see him on crutches months and months later. I'm not going to say what I've done to him, but it wasn't good. And um, I only wanted to know where his mate was. I wanted to get my hands on his mate who put his hands on my missus. Mm. So I did some terrible things to him. Um, and he had actually left the country that night. Flew out and didn't come back for a very long time. Uh, so I'm going to make it right with him. I know I would have made it right with him since I've been home, but um, I've got a couple of I've got about six hundred grand owed to me. Two people going like that to me, calling the police all the time. Two different projects. They will get resolved. One's getting resolved imminently. You've got a very good business brain. I mean, I know people that have done two years behind the door and they come out and they're well. They're institutionalised, even with that. I mean, to you, you know, you, you'll consider that, you know, a, a canteen queue. 
but they come out and their brain's fried and they're fucked where they've been, you know, festering within those four walls and they come out and they cannot get back into Civvy Street properly. And then they, they just they, they just end up pissed every night, drinking other people's fucking drinks. They can't afford their own. It fucks yeah. them. Whereas you've done 20 years and then you come out and then you you set up a business that turned over like north of a million quid, didn't you? I did 1.7 million on, on one site. I had five sites at the time. But that's but, after doing a big, long stint in jail. You come out into Civvy Street and just turn your hand to it and boom, it worked. Yeah, I thought, I'll find out what I do when I get home. I've got a van, got a truck, uh, spent five grand on uniform. Fuck me, there's like Star Trek uniforms. They're the smartest bleeding block pavers in the country. They look really <laughs> smart. Is that what it was, construction firm? Yeah, and then it just grew to sites. And I, I did take a few quid, but I think it's because I was hungry for life. I enjoy being around people, which makes it easier to get Wanting to make it. up for lost time. Well, people say that, but I've been like that since I was 12. Paper round, bakers, chip shop. I was working with a builder at 14. I'd been on a flat at 15. I was sharing with a pal of mine who was 18. And he, was, he got chucked out of America, coming in the English system in care. His old man used to hit him with electric leads. And he just went on a burgling spree for years, going from coast to coast. Young kid, living on the street. And then he got come to England. And he got a flat and lived with him. And you're not from like a horrible North London tower block. Oh, you come from good stock and a little village somewhere, didn't you? Yeah, Harefield, Middlesex. Beautiful village in this day. Still is beautiful now. Tough village. Tough man's village. They used to have two uh, special patrol group vans sitting in the village on an empty out of a Friday and Saturday night. There was like 17 odd pubs in the village. Mm. That's about down the lanes. Big common. So it's, you know, good meeting place. And they used to kick off there a lot of travellers as well, down the lanes and things. But, you know, we all went to school together and stuff, so it was a tough village. Because of your, but the, the level in, the level of violence you would you would take things to, kidnapping people and all, and then the boxing. Do you think that's why Chris Spackman thought Kev will be Kev will be an easy option to that's fit exactly up here? Exactly what he did. That's exactly it. That, that, that it was easy to fit it around me, boxer. Local bloke in the area, been done for kidnapping before. Um, so was you considered a debt collector as well? Never collected debts, um, nothing like that. But Some sort of enforcer though? Yeah, like where I had a security firm. I bought a security firm to go into camera security. So I wanted it as a stepping stone. But before I knew it, I had like 120 dorm work for me full time. Mm. That's without the raves, it's without, you know, full time. That's a lot of dormant back there. When I was 18, when actually I, was a bit, I didn't start the company until I was 20, but I was on the doors at 18. And I bought the company and started it and just brought it off on my own. But next thing you know, I've got all these dormant working, all these clubs all over London, 12 pubs, six clubs I had full time. Young man, it just takes you into a path that you're not mature enough really in that area to understand where you really are. Yes, a lot of responsibility for a young man. So Chris Spackman, combination of being jealous of you, because you've achieved more than he's achieved in his whole mm. lifetime. And the fact that you had a violent history and you're moving in circles where enforcement takes place, he's just thought, Kev is going to be an easy target for me. And also, I didn't realise at the time that I was I was, um, I was was set up to fall. The car was put, a car was stolen off of my drive. The day, the very first day I've got this car to try it out, I said, right, let me try this car. It's a Ford Codsworth. And I'd had one before, come back into the country, needed another one, got this car. It was taken off from my drive, and then the car was, I borrowed a car, but the, 
the car that I was borrowed, I was loaned, should I say, wasn't the car that was used at the scene. The registration was copied, and the car that was used at the scene was a different colour, different colour wheels, different colour interior, and a BMW mechanic walked around that car and he'd given all this information to the police, but we never got the picture of the wheels. He gave an exact picture of the wheels, an exact paint code to the car, and he even told them the different colour of, the, like I say, the material in the car. When we sent a car inspector to view the car, we finally got to view it after being given a run around. It had been stripped down to bare. They stripped the car and even took the coverings off of it. So you being fitted up, it weren't a case of, shit, we're in a situation, let's get ourselves out of it as and when we can. The second that murder took place, Spackman knew who committed the murders and they went straight into, we need to get out of this situation now and the plan was made immediately and you were the one they were gunning for. That's exactly what happened and it's only come about years later that I realised that um, I was the full guy. Fuck yeah, okay. Yeah, big thing. Massive. More so when my pals are coming forward and saying, he's going around bragging about he did the murder. He's bragging that he did it and saying, that's tough luck, that's the way it goes. My co-defendant. So that's, yeah, that's the way it goes, he says. And what about your code? Is he, is he out there? Do you know where he is? He's in prison at the minute for another murder. That's oh, the one I can't mention. Yes, you said that earlier on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah you did. Ah, okay. He's getting out soon, though. He's in, one of them's getting out already. They've had their sentences reduced. One got it reduced by five years. One got it reduced by three. They got sentenced to 30 years recommended and 25 years recommended. Kept in Belmarsh unit on remand for 14 months. Had two closed court hearings back at the court in front of the judge that sentenced him. Closed court. You know what that is, Liam, don't you? The public can't hear what's going on in mm. there. You stand a better chance if there's a viewing gallery there for the public. He went back on appeal and got five off. The other one got three off. And they've flown through the system at a great pace of knots. Haven't it with anybody and anybody who they could. Throwing a bit of money around at the time. So he had a bit of money. He's got a bit of money, one of them. Um, buying their friends, giving away gold watches. Fact. Giving away gold watches to people. As you, as you do. Well, yes, you do. To get a bit of giving money to... He was giving money to uh, terrorists. Funding them, lending the money for money back, things like that. Give them 50 grand, put 200 grand on my head. So then went up, which 50, then went up to 100, then 200. How many contracts have you had out on you? Oh, loads over the years. Taking oh. any of them seriously? Take every one of them seriously. The little coca that keeps bragging about it and things like that. You've got to take them seriously. Like official Osman warnings when the police come to you and say, there's a price put on your head. Yeah, I've been taken off of a plane at Bleeding Stansted. By on by police, front and back. Can Kevin Lane identify himself? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> out in the back and there's a police officer standing there. Mr. Lane? No, you're Mr. Lane. Come with me. And then uh, every time I go to uh, uh, in and out of the country, I'll get taken. I'll get stuff like that. Because you are still considered a contract killer, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. The kidnappings and that didn't help me over the years. I've done a lot of them. But I say kidnappings. Like, you take someone for a ride who's beat someone up or done this or done that, they owe you money. It's a kidnapping. No, I've just taken him in my car for a ride. Well, that's, take, that's kidnapping. But you look at the Colombian kidnappings and Brazilian kidnappings and things like that. Kidnapping's a very, very big word to use for taking someone away 
Well, it is kidnapping when you take them down the woods and that, but you're not keep, taking them away and keeping them, are you? Get them hostage for a week. Yeah, there's levels, isn't there? Levels of kidnapping, yeah. Mama's taking them away, hurt you, get the information out of you, I need you and release you. But you got convicted for your kidnapping, so you could say you've you've done your time for the crime and then meeting the victim years later. I mean, fair play for doing that. I've, hopefully he's he's on the men now. Yeah, he is. Uh, get him down the gym in you. Get him down the boxing gym. If, or, is he, or is his leg still fucked? He's all right now. He, goes, he works and that... Um... He don't really do much to anything like that, but uh, he's definitely... I'm going to be doing a podcast with him. Brilliant. Right, with James English. And hopefully that's going to take him forward with a bit, a bit of being able to... Um, not reform, it's it's rehabilitation. Right. He's able to speak about it and get it out. And I'll sit there and I'll take it all, what he wants to say, uh, and rightly so. And uh, it's mad to say that we're now friends, isn't it? And he takes a piss out of me. And literally he, takes a piss out of me. He owes you that at least. He fucking... <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> in the fence, he's got that wit about him where we've now got that 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 rapport where mm. he's very comfortable with me, you he's know? He's probably so relieved. Oh, he's probably... So, your, yours was... I mean, it's hard to believe because you're a handsome fucker, but Thank yours you. is the face that has probably haunted him for years. He said that. Mm. He did say that, yeah. Yeah. Which, being such a handsome bloke, and I've got, I've got to be careful how, how I phrase this now, because I want to go back to jail, and I want to talk about relationships in jail. Now, when my dad was in prison with Reg Cray, now we all know that Ron was gay from day one, and we all know that Reg turned gay, and mm. it was reported in The Sun that my old man and Reg had a gay relationship in jail. Whether they did or they didn't, I'll never know. They sued the son. They denied all allegations, although I strongly suspect that Reg would have liked to. It may have happened. I don't know. But what I do know is that a lot of lifers, at one time of their sentence, they fancy a bit of affection. I'm not saying... Fair play you say that, because they I, do. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's you, mm. but I'm saying like... You must have seen that. You must. You must have seen gay relationships form from straight men because they had no other options. So that, that's a very good topic because I've been saying for years since only just come out, and I've done well since the podcast I've done. I've been mentioning it on podcasts so that you're starved of affection, mm. which is why men cuddle in prison because they're missing that. A hug does so much for you, and that, that's why men cuddle all the time in prison, and they come out and they still cuddle because they've missed that love. What are you creating by not giving people that love in prison? You're, turn, you're creating men to turn to each other. So when they're in the lower categories, they're sharing cells together, they get drunk together, they take drugs together, next thing you know, they're making love together. Or you get the likes of like Dominic Noonan. He used to pay people to suck them off, but they had to have a dirty cock. Fucking the extremities of what goes on in them places, you would be shocked at. But in terms of men wanting companionship, everybody wants love. Everybody wants to feel love. Some people don't have the withdrawal to sustain that. Other men go that way and they go home and they're back to their wife. But to get them through their sentence, they will take place. More mm. so now than it used to. More so now because... Society's changed in acceptance and what is accepted and what isn't accepted. It's an interesting topic. You could get right into the nuts and bolts of it because a lot of a lot of red-blooded males, especially people that 
have never been given a life sentence. Mm. We'll listen to this conversation and they'll say, fucking, I would never, ever do uh, that. Bollocks. You wouldn't catch me doing that. But until you're put to the test, I mean, how did I greet you when you come to the door? Yeah, give me a cuddle. I gave you I'll a cuddle. I'll give you one. And until you interact Affection is important, like you say. Massive affection, because you're lying in bed on your own for 20 years. Not that we're going to have sex. <laughs> we'll put that on the record. On my countenance eyesight. <laughs> so I was, what was I going to tell you there about uh, Pat Purcell? Catwalk, he goes to me, he goes, he's right good with some of the little things he says, like funny fucker pays. And uh, he's gone now, Catwalk, he says, when you start looking at one bum, they're all the same. And I thought, what are you on about? He's gone, I'm telling you, you look at one bum, they're all the same. So I came out the showers one day and I've looked up and there's a fucking arse in front of me. Oh, what fucking hell? He's got a nice arse. And I thought, Pat! <laughs> and I thought, am I gay? Am I turning gay? Am I, do I feel like I'm fancying a man? Have I got a stiffy? I ain't got a stiffy. That's a good sign. Am I thinking about men when I'm in masturbating? No, I'm not. But... It goes to show that from that simple observation of looking up, I see a little arse. And Pat said, when you look at one bum, they're all the fucking same. You can't tell. If, if a man's got a nice bum, it don't mean he's a man and he ain't got a nice bum, does it? Because you're a man. If you've got a nice arse, you've got a nice arse. If you're a woman, you've got a nice arse. If you ain't got a nice arse, you ain't. Men get nice asses, don't they? Like, you can have a nice shape to you. And it dawned on me, I thought, well, there'll be other people in the prison that will find that attractive. And that's the start, or one of the start, or one of the reasons why people go that way, because you start, that may evolve, and it'd be the catalyst to you going and wanting that affection. And that's when I started thinking about conjugal visits and how men are starved of love in prison, which is why men look for that love, because it's, it's a hormone that needs to be fed. Mm. It's a natural hormone that's removed from you when you go into prison, which isn't natural, to remove man from having that sexual contact. That embrace, that love, releasing that emotion. If you don't release that emotion, where does it go? It probably turns into frustration and anger. Thank you very much. Do you know there's more nickings in the summer in prison than there is in the winter? Is that because we're all walking around with a loaded gun and... Testosterone goes up because mm. of heat. And then what happens that? to that? And what happens to that? You end up getting drunk and, you know, they're drunk and someone might try and kiss you. It's never happened to me, not once. Did you get propositioned? Never. Not once. Not once. That surprises me. Probably because I was always fighting. Mm. It put people off. Not because you're that way inclined, but, you know, you're... Yeah, I was just always fighting. I thought, fuck, no, you might give me a right-hander. <laughs> a right-hander. <laughs> <laughs> I might be ambidextrous, <laughs> milking cows. <laughs> Fucking hell. So, yeah, I do see, and I've had pals in there that I know have gone that way. I don't talk to them about it. They don't talk to me about it. But you wouldn't judge them, would you? I don't judge them at all. No. At all. No, I wouldn't. I've had some good friends in there. Mm. Proper good friends. Yeah, I wouldn't. I think I think everybody's entitled to love. And I've seen some real decent blokes in there that have gone that way. Haven't bothered anybody, haven't hurt anybody. Okay? And I would consider them really good friends. A different environment. i tell you what I do find bizarre is Dominic Noonan paying men to suck their dick but it's got to be dirty. Mm. That's nuts. That is fucking little nuts. And he used to brag about that. Is that a dominant thing? I don't know what it was with Dominic, because he's recently been arrested for some acts that he's probably denying, 
But I believe it's true because he had a lot of young boys around him at the time. Uh, things like that. He liked doing stuff like that in prison. Uh, he's been arrested for a few times. Uh, I got on with Dominic. I liked him. He's a great conversationist. Nothing was proven about against him then. I see a documentary where he's got a lot of young boys around him, and I think he's subsequently been convicted of acts against those young boys. You you just you never ever know what someone's truly like, do you? No, because in prison, what I found is people can be you can either have to behave because you're in an area where you're being scrutinised, looked at. So you will be nice, you will be better behaved, and you come out of prison, you fall back into your old ways, which is robbing someone or having someone over. I've had pals in prison. I consider really good pals who owe me money. Mm. It's cost me money. But in prison, one geezer stood his ground next to me. It was going off on the wing and uh, I've gone down and faced this fella. He's got a tool on him. He's got a towel around his neck. He's got, he's got, uh, I think he's got a magazine, tapes across his heart and he's got pullovers, uh, sweatshirts on. And the next thing I've seen this little fella standing next to me, Stephen Ashes. You still owe me that seven grand, Stephen. So he's 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 fighting of his own shell. So what are you doing here, Steve? He said, I'm not fucking let you stand here on your own, Kevin. We'll have a fight. You know, and I thought, my God, he come home, I helped him out. I sent him down to get a job of a pal of mine who had a cab firm. From the cab firm, he's ended up getting some skunk. Seven grand's worth. No one come and told me, said they've given him skunk. I said, what the fuck are you doing? I don't deal in drugs. I sent him to you for a cab job. He's come down here to get a job. He started working for you. Now you're telling me he owes someone £7,000. Why didn't you ask me before you give him the stuff? Because I would have said, no, don't. I want nothing to do with it. I've got nothing to do with it. And now you've come to me to say he's run off with some stuff that you've given, which I've had no part of and no knowledge of. You, you've never had any involvement in drugs, have you? I hate it. Mm. My son has a sniff. He hasn't had a sniff for a year. Uh, my other son, uh, hard, both very hard workers. But I don't like, I've had ease and things, you know, and I used to have a puff. Back in the day? Well, I had a puff. Uh, I had a puff last night. I had a joint last night of a pal of mine. He's going through something quite bad at the moment. I went round to take him some food and make sure he's okay. And uh, I, had a, I just shared a joint with him. Um, that's it, really, but I don't like it. How does it make you feel? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I'm asking, because I, if, I mean, you, you, this is going to sound nuts, but you could offer me a substantial amount of money to smoke a joint. And don't. I would turn it away because it, years ago it fried my brain. And I know that it would take me straight back to... Paranoia. Does it, how does it make you feel? The puff's no good for me because it stops me being proactive and busy. Yeah. It doesn't make me paranoid. Um, it just calms me down. But I don't think it's something that is good for society because young kids are getting addicted on it now. And it's run away with how people used to have a joint before. Now it's, it's building, building, building spliffs all the time. Loading them right up, smoking them, these young kids. Then they're getting schizophrenia and paranoia because they're loading them up ridiculously. Their intolerance is going up. They're smoking that skunk, which is a load of shite. Laced with fuck knows what. Oh, of of shit, Liam. So I smoke the, gen the, the old pollen. 
um, and I'll get, we can pull it apart in your hand, not the black. If I have a joint, I'll get it where you can just pull it apart like a um, marshmallow. That's how clean it is. Is it like a light brownie colour, that pollen? Yeah. yeah I mean, I brown. used to smoke it back in like yeah. 25 years ago, so I still remember all the different bits and pieces and the, the variations. But I do know that that skunk nowadays is, you know, may the Lord be with you if you want to start smoking that because who knows what's in it. I'll tell you Mind what. Mind Mind altering. So where would you get, if you wanted to smoke, where would you get a decent bit of smoke from? You'd get it from the Moroccans, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, that I, that's all I'm saying to you. I'll rest my case. So if, that, <laughs> if I want a spliff, I'll say, go and see someone who's a Moroccan, I'll say, get a spliff, please. He'd give me a roll spliff, I'll take it home with me, and I'll smoke that any evening, if I need to. But pretty much no um, for me. Because it gets in the way of your fitness and that. And it fucks you up, excuse my French, going forward in life and being productive. You can't have you can't have them that blinkers on where you can't see outside of there. All you can see is don't I don't I don't like that. I like to be in control of my my faculties. Drugs and drink don't really control me. What controls me is succeeding. I used to like to find a business and make it work or put an idea together and see it come together. So the camera security, the security company, you can see where I was going with that back in 1991. You know mm. where it is. God, mate, yeah. Rubbish, the recycled rubbish, again, 1991, 92. I had a yard, I set that up. Uh, look where that is now. I mean, you you are the epitome of a doer, isn't you? I'm not limbering up on the touchline waiting to come on and have a go. I'll get it out, out there and have a go. So I designed this house, for instance. I've designed these houses that mobile homes... They wobble, they bounce. You can hear someone fart through the walls. Don't let Dominic Noonan smell that fart. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't let him that near me. He'll think it's Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, geezer. So <laughs> I couldn't could resist. Yeah, I know. Well, he'd want you to smell it, he would. Um, <laughs> I've put a low galvanised steel hat frame house. I've put it onto a superstructure chassis so you can wheel it in under what's uh, called temporary and portable accommodation, same as mobiles. But the same house, if it was built from the foundations out of concrete, it's mortgageable. So I've taken that house, put it onto a superstructure chassis that can be wheeled in under portable and temporary accommodation, take the wheels off and lower it. And there's different shapes and sizes, and that's what I've designed. And now people are copying it. There's a company in this country that had my one of my homes in their factory. I said, that's my home. They said, yeah, we copied it. I went, fair play to you. I'm pleased because it shows that I've done a beautiful job. However, um, I seem to have foresight about things like that. I've got a few other little ideas in my head floating around. I think that if you hadn't spent, was it 24 years? 24 in total, yeah. I think if you hadn't spent 24 years in prison, from what I know of you outside of the podcast, the, the deeper I've got, I believe that, you probably would have been one of the top CEOs of the country, the way you think and operate. I'm going to be. I'm, I'm going to still be a CEO because I've just been asked to JV of a company called Net Zero Build, and they launched 700 million in this country. They're a tier one company, global, and they're the ones that was copying my barn in their factory. So I've just JV'd with them. Well, credit where credit's due. So where do you think you would have been? Or what do you think you would have done if you weren't wrongly convicted for 24 years? It's even happening now, though. So talking about where I would have been, so parking, clamping, 
I used to look after a pal of mine, two pals of mine, in areas where they're rough as old boots, and people saying, you ain't clamping here. So I would go down and say, look, we are clamping here. We've got a contract with here. Just don't fucking park there. You can't be parking in disabled bands because people who, this is why they've got them here. Now, look, this is how it works. We're going to still clamp here. You will get so much a clamp to make sure these lads are right down here. And it's not worth going to war over, is it? Because we are going to be clamping here anyway. So you're going to now going to get paid. They're getting paid. I never took a penny. Multi-millionaires, the pair of them. They're CEOs of certain factories, certain companies in this country where they said, Kevin, you should be on the board on that because of what you just said. I said, no, oh, thank you very much. But I, yeah, it's nice that you see that because it's been said a few times now. Mm, the way you think and operate, like you've, you tick all the boxes for a high-flying CEO. So I, I started selling Kirby Uvers and people go, Kirby Uvers? So yeah, don't laugh at it. I was getting 15 grand a month unsecured. Every month, I'm oh, selling Hoovers. I wonder how many people watching this will remember Kirby them Hoovers. Kirby Hoovers. You'd go and do mattresses and get all the bugs out, wouldn't you? Holy shit, I've still got one now. Mm. £15,000 a month I was earning wages as a, just a salesman. Would you do in the door-to-door knocking? Door-to-door knocking. I used to sell two in one home. I used to sell... I sold 26 in a weekend once, and I delivered 16 because I couldn't get finance on all of them. Some didn't pay cash. But I broke a world record on that. Before that, when I got bail for the kidnapping for... When I took William away, uh, I went and got a job for Irish Life before I got a conviction, and I was fourth in the south of England for pipeline business. I was taking on fortunes then as well. Again, a young man. Um, if I see something, I know it can work. So I see things now, and I think, you know what, there's money in that, and sooner or not people are going to be on that, and they're going to jump on it. Hence the superstructure chassis that I've built, and everyone's jumping all over that now. And that's going to accommodate millions of people. That design was put forward for the the uh, Master Federation's Builders Award of the Year. And as soon as they found out I've got a criminal record, said you can't go forward because you've got a criminal record. Yeah, it's sad, mate. I mean, I'm, I can, well, I know how you feel about Chris Spackman, the dog yeah. that's responsible for fitting you up. How do you feel about the two that actually committed the murder that have prevented you to go on being the CEO that you should be? I wouldn't have marked had so much feeling towards them if I didn't know they had a hand in fitting me up. So I do believe that uh, poetic justice will come their way. They're suffering now because they're getting people to grass them off in prison. A lot of people are still having it with them, of course, but um, that's just the nature of the beast now. Right? They're, getting, they're walking in and people are doing sirens and all the rest of it in the prison saying, cool, they're looked down upon. They're feeling that. Mm. They are proper feeling it. And... Uh, that's enough for me. If you, yeah, I was going to say, if you was in a room with them, would you be able to control yourself? No, no. I'd wear them both in. I said to him before, like one of them was gobbing off, and he's going, oh, "I see him, I fucking do him." And my mate was there. He's going, "You what, you stupid little bastard?" That was the Smith. He's going, "You're shut your mouth talking about Kevin like that because he smashed your head in, and he smashed the other geezer's head in. Pair of you together at the same time." And the geezer put his head down and that. So, like gobbing off when I ain't now, or gobbing off to people that ain't friends of mine. But um, I don't mug themselves off because my name spoke about in the prison system really well all over the country, and they still speak about me now. I say that respectfully, of course, um, from what people keep telling me. But what I did in prison, as well as a lot of other people done a lot of things in prison, but what I did in prison still stands out today. Um, and they have to live with that because they haven't done what I've done. 
in terms of the fights I had in prison for the reasons I had fights, why I had those fights, should I say, with the people I did. But they wouldn't dare step up to the bleeding podium to have a row with them. Gutless little pricks. Yeah, they got a fucking lot to answer for. And so outside of them two, temperament-wise, do you think you'll ever go back to jail? Can't answer that. Because of I can trust myself to behave, I can't trust other people. I've recently been in a police station down on the coast, was invited in, interviewed. My mother of my child, my youngest, starts seeing a man that shouted and smacked my son and smoked big smelly cigarettes that he throws on the floor and the birds eat him and die. That's skunk. I was told that she was seeing him, wasn't bothered about that. He then subsequently shouted and smacked my son. I went to the court over this and I told the judge I was hiring a private detective to find out if she is seeing this bloke because she's been on holiday with him abroad so I can get that through freedom of information. She's been away on holiday with my son, with this bloke. He's been in the house, he's stayed in the house. My son's come out with so many details when he's like five, he can't be making up. I was called into a police station a little while ago and said that if I hire a private detective, I will be arrested for stalking. And I said, what about Sarah's law? My son said that this man shouted and smacked him. The details is give quite specific. He can't have made them up. And I told that I've been told I'm going to be arrested for that. And that means I can be recalled to prison. You've got a a big disadvantage out there, and yeah, compared to other people. One step out of line, boom, still back in there. I went in front of the judge, and the mother of my uh, son said, "I'm a single parent, struggling mother." And I said, "She hits me, Your Honour." She's punched me, she's hit me over the head with pictures. And the judge looked at me and said, you're a convicted contract killer. Look at the size of you to her. Size means nothing. She's hit you. I'm telling you now she's hit you. And the mother's hit me when I've been on crutches, steamed into me and all the rest of it. And uh, it came out five years later. I only got their messages. Yeah, I did hit you and I did you again. And I did this and the mother and the mum. Yeah, I did slap you when you was on crutches. And she got threatened with contempt and court and perjury and all sorts. But... The court's still fine in favour of the women, pretty much. What would you say to anybody watching this that's considering a life of crime? What would your message to the masses be? You know, you, you get, we all get temptations. So yesterday I had a phone call <clears throat> from someone. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to mention his name because I haven't got his permission, but you know who this fellow is. And he said, someone's just gone through my neighbour's house, gone in there, knives, gone straight in up to the safe, ripped the safe out. Uh, there's 100 grand in there, seven Rolexes and other stuff. There's only 1,500 of these Rolexes made in the world. That's in there. I know where they are, got their addresses, got ones, blah, 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 blah. Next thing you know, he's phoned this person, told him who this person is. This person then says, well, you know Kevin Lane. Yeah, I do know Caroline. He says, well, ask him who I am. And then he says, the bloke's family about It doesn't matter who he is. I said, what is my name coming to this fucking for? What is my name doing in there? It's got nothing to do with me. So we put your, he said about you. I said, well, listen, you shouldn't be worried about who he is or what he is. If you want to go and collect the debt, go and get the stuff back, go and get it. So he goes, I wouldn't be worried about 
who they were or what they were. I don't ask questions who they are. Years ago, I just used to say, give me the address. Who am I working with? That's what people normally say. I say, no, where is it? Big difference. Some people won't go and work with someone unless for different reasons. I accept reasonable reasons and all. But getting back to crime. So I was offered, I could have gone and got this stuff back. I'd have had to crash, go through front doors. So I'd have had to take a door opener with me, sledgehammer. And then I'd have, and then I'd have gone in and met whoever's in there, found out where the stuff is. So I had the three addresses if I wanted to, so to speak. So there was it my there was in my grasp, really. That act of crime might have got me hundred grand, but it would also, I believe, put me back in prison. So the temptation side of things is what I'm trying to get across to people here is temptation comes to people every single day, whether it's drugs or easy money. That come to me, I said, I ain't fucking interested. See you later. Don't phone me again, is what I actually said. I said, don't phone me again. Put the phone down. Right? You go to prison. You ain't going into a, a nice happy home. You're going into prison to deceit distrust the worst of the worst and the best of the best and that's a very difficult environment to live in where blokes are stabbing each other robbing each other there's so much violence in there now there's a better way of life because this isn't a dress rehearsal is it if this is one life live it get on with your life and enjoy a walk in a park enjoy the rain pissing down on you because you can go out in that rain because you haven't got to wait for exercise if you want to go and have a run enjoy the quality of life money gives you opportunities but it doesn't make you happy per se completely it just allows you to exist in society at a different level but you can be very happy with nothing because i've been very happy with nothing in prison and i'm telling you now it's no, it's, it is a complete and utter mugs game. Some people do very well at it, but they do have to go to prison as well. And it isn't a career criminal now. You're not a career criminal because they take it all off you. So your career's gone, isn't it? They take everything. Look at Kenny Collins, Hatton Garden Burglar. His house, a million quid. They sold it for £650,000. I wonder who bought that house. Had a nice few quid profit out of it. So you, if you get caught, you lose it all anyway and you go to prison for a long time and they keep chasing you for more. Kenny's got to pay £1,500 a day interest on the money that he owes for the money they, for the, the, the gold or such they reckon's missing. All rubbish. And the, the, the criminal justice system is heavily bent against you to make sure you go to prison and make sure they keep you pinned down. They've got it all boxed off now. Duck and dive a bit, as long as you don't go to prison. I don't see nothing wrong with ducking and diving. A bit of knocked off gear for the docks years ago. That was considered okay. Got to get by it for your family. Perks of the job. But crime, I am a testament to that. Crime does not work. I've worked very hard in my life and I've been very, very well. And I've been a lot happier. And I'm, I'm not had to worry about people not paying you for your drugs, not paying you for this, not paying you for that, robbing you. So basically... I don't think personally for me and for many other people out there, once they've been to prison for the length of time that I've been for, or for a very short period of time, realise that it isn't a place you should be going to because it's not the same anymore. So please just go to work and spend time with your loved ones.
Totally agree with you. This is normally the stage where I would say, what does the future hold for Kevin Lane? But I'm not going to ask you that because you can come back and tell me all about it in a year or two and we're going to stay in touch. But my final question is this. Heartfelt. How are you? I'm really happy because I love meeting people. When I go out now, I get, I get stopped all the time. Shops, shopping centres, pubs and that. And I stop and have my picture taken and I say, oh, I'm, and I'm, you can see by the photographs. I thought about this last night. You can generally see I'm really happy when I'm having these pictures taken with the people and it's heartfelt. I'm not very happy in terms of my son because I've always got the, 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 the dwell of uh, my son, me not seeing my son anymore, my youngest son. And I was almost, I nearly turned around and said, if anybody's got any proof that Terry Ferrugia is seeing Harry Jones down in Folkestone, please tell me, because she's telling the court she isn't. And she's lying. And he's lying. And I know she's seeing him. And he's got issues where he hits himself in the face if he doesn't get things right and what he does. Smokes in big cigarettes and all the rest of it, all right? So I can't hire a private detective. So if an innocent bystander wants to come forward and tell me they definitely know that she's seeing him and give me proof of that or give me a thank you, that would make me a lot happier. So I wouldn't be, as I am at the moment, daily thinking, when am I going to see my son next? Am I going to see him next? And what is she going to do next? So I'm not in a very good position there because it's a big thing for me not seeing my kid, as it is for a lot of people. So it's very bad there what I'm going through. Uh, and to be fair, I've got it. I'm being attacked from all areas. I've got the police trying to put me back in prison in one area. I've got this geezer called Andrew Chatters who owes me money, or Andrew Andrews from Brighton. Uh, I've got debt collectors waiting to go and knock on his door, but that can be seen now as threatening. Can't go to the courts because I sold them to him in Turkey. Uh, I've got my house is in the show home site in Chalfont, sitting there, been shut off for a year because they're contesting the wheel and all sorts of bollocks because the nan's dying. She's 110, she used to own Odeon Cinemas. So I've got that. So I've got quite a lot against me at the minute. But I'll be absolutely honest with you, Liam, right? It's character building. Because every day I get up and think I won't be beat. I'm just going to keep going forward. And I've lost everything again. I've come home, COVID come in. I lost that company. I've come home, started again. And now I've had that. That's all gone. My house is sitting in the meadow, sitting there. I'm moving them off soon. They're being moved to Peter Fury's site down in Cornwall and he's going to sell them for me. But I've struggled for two years without a wage. I put all my money into the land, all my money into the homes and then get shut off the, the site. And my home's still sitting there. So I've had a real difficult two years, but that's the point. I haven't gone back to prison. I haven't committed crime. So if I can eat Weetabix and water from Friday to Monday without selling my pals and then them go nuts to find out that I have been eating Weetabix and water because I was too proud to tell them and they're paying my bills and buying me this car and paying for that and doing this and doing that, okay? But I'm free and I'm happy. And that's all that matters, isn't it? Because if you can smile, it costs nothing to smile. It makes you feel good. And I wake up for stiffy every morning. So that's a good thing because it means <laughs> <laughs> I've got no one next to me. <laughs> Very quickly, my book was going to be called Hitman or Hoover Salesman. Question mark, you decide. Hitman or Hoover Salesman. Folks, you've had a good stint of Kev. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Fitted up and fighting back. I recommend everybody that's watched this, reads that, to get more detail, more depth of what we spoke about. 
I deliberately guarded it the way I did so we can mix and match and get a few different stories in there and leave enough for people to want to read that book. No, honestly, I've really enjoyed coming here. Thank you a lot. Till the next time, brother. I look forward to it. Same. There's going to be more soon. So when the film comes out, that will be happening. I mean, it's it's that's going to be happening. When that happens, watch what the kid of my conviction will be back at the Court of Appeal soon. Don't forget, my grounds are being written now for the Criminal Cases Review Commission. And um, a judge who read my book said, attach your book to the application form. A judge told me that. In fact, before we wrap this up, Talk about how close you are to getting your conviction overturned. I'm so close. So the jury was told that I gripped a gun inside that bag. Now you think, if my if you're told I gripped a gun inside that bag, it's damning. We've since learnt that the prosecution who gave the evidence uh, in relation to that wasn't qualified to do so. And not only was he, was he not qualified to do so, uh, Tracy Alexandra from Metropolitan Police conducted an examination for Panorama. And they said it's absolute rubbish. So not only did I not grip a gun in a bag, the expert who gave evidence wasn't even qualified. Now, you cannot second guess what a jury member would have made of that evidence. I could not second guess that you would have thought, well, that's damning evidence. Because we don't know what you thought. But one thing's for sure, I got found guilty on a 10 to 2 majority, and they was out for nine and a half hours, two and a half days or a bit they was out for, or two and a bit days, right? So the fact is this. I'm going up on an appeal based on jury being misled and falsely informed, as well as a number of other factors to do with my co-defendant working with the police and so on and so forth. So I'm very confident that my conviction is going to be squashed and my grounds are being drafted now for the CCRC. The film will come out, it'll just catapult it even more. I'm likely to do some presenting soon. I'm doing restorative justice. I do a lot for men's mental health groups. One, uh, one for the lads and scared to jump. Look at them. It's 5,000 followers, one of them. So my life's in a good place in a minute, although I'm skint. But I won't be skinned for much longer. That can all change. That'll change. Listen, I'm alive and I'm free. Because when you're living on £15 a week in prison mm -hmm. and you can't walk anywhere or you're locked in a cell, big difference. So now I'm alive and I'm, and I'm living and I'm seeing my son every two weeks. But, yeah. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm okay. Thank you. Let's go and have a bit of steak. Let's go and have a bit of steak. <laughs> Cheers.